0: Obviously, this is a very um, first-world, post-modern American Christian question. Um, when we, we talk about Jesus being the answer, I guess you know, the question is, which Jesus? You know, uh, Where do we go to to identify this Jesus properly? Because I think so embedded within uh, American Christianity is just an overwhelming individualistic uh, perspective. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden-Lore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grum. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary. A historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry and Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. We're pursuing perfection here, so let's do that again. Oh,
1: okay. All right.
0: Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Alan Noble, serving as the Associate Professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University. Alan is also the Editor-in-Chief of Christ in Pop Culture, along with a contributor for Christianity Today in the Atlantic. After the success of his first book, Disruptive Witness, Alan has a new book, You Are Not Your Own. Alan, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank
1: you. I'm, I'm excited to be here.
0: You know, I will say this, uh, as a person who has, um, not mastered the art of English, it always makes me nervous to interview people, um, where that's their field of, of, of expertise. So are you, are you the kind of professor that like corrects people grammatically live? Okay. All right.
1: No, no, I don't No, not at all. I don't have that kind of time. Or stress, but, like my my um, emotional energy, to be correcting people's grammar when they're speaking. Um, so no. Well,
0: you know, I I um also serve as senior pastor of University Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So right down from LSU, and I've got a church full of academics, and you know, preaching is a exercise of anxiety for me on a weekly basis i always stick with the script because if not you go off script that's when you start to maybe say words and phrases and complete sentences you know things that that you you see those those eyebrows just go up and you know um Uh yeah so maybe this is just one big advertisement for for grammarly uh (laughs) someone who does not sponsor this podcast but we would love for them uh to do so because they are currently saving me in my doctoral program so uh yeah. So, Alan, thanks for joining the conversation.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, that's it. So do you think so Grammarly actually works? I'm super skeptical.
0: I don't. Think OK, it works. so I will say as a person um, and I'm totally fully committed to leaving all of this in for this episode. Um. Yeah. Good. So um, as a person who like if you gave me something you've written, which, of course, if mm-hmm. you wrote something, you know, as a as an associate professor of English, there's not going to be a single error in there. Um, but someone who might write with errors, I could find them, but for my, myself, after writing for so long and reading through, I just don't, I don't find my own stuff. So it helps me find the stuff. And I do like the fact that it has different settings where, you know, if it's an academic writing or if it's a casual writing. So for me, it works. Uh, but for those that are, you know, experts in the, um, you know, very simple language that is English, um, (laughs) It's a mess. Maybe not. English
1: yeah. is a terrible language.
0: Okay. So besides, you know, being a um, grammatical Jedi Knight, uh, what else would you want people to know about you? I don't know.
1: I'm, I'm bald. I'm really bad at grammar. I'm not great. I'm not really bad at grammar. I don't, I'm, I'm not really great at grammar. Um, what else? I live in Oklahoma. Yeah. I guess we covered that. I like books. I have a family.
0: That's it. I'm good. I like how you slept in there subtly and then just kept on moving on that you were bald. Um, so it's, it's part of your identity. Quick question. Um, and special shout out to all my friends that do live in Oklahoma. Is it still required that when y'all wake up in the morning, you belt out the anthem from that great musical? No,
1: no. I, you know, I'm from California. So if that is required, I have been living in, uh, sin or um (laughs) violation of the law i don't know which is applicable here for seven plus years um but we're super relaxed in oklahoma you know it's a very red state we're not very picky about things you know you don't you know you don't got to wear a mask you don't have to do anything so if if that were a law nobody would care that's okay all
0: right um so, uh, how did you make it from uh, from California out to, to Oklahoma? I drove. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I haven't. So, <laughs> I,
1: to, to to be clear, just some context. I was up until like midnight, and then I woke up at four a.m. to finish getting grades in by nine a.m. So, I'm uh, you know, I'm I'm feisty today. Uh, so I went to <laughs> I went to Baylor. My wife and I went to Baylor uh to get uh, our PhDs she ended up getting a a second master's and I got a PhD in English and this job opened up at Oklahoma Baptist and I was like that sounds good um because the job market is 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 terrible and here was a job and it 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 was a nice place and I could afford to buy a house so we moved here
0: (laughs) you drove that's great I was listening recently to um we have a uh, our our congregation is multicultural and uh, one of the kids was explaining about when they came from nigeria and uh he shared in the story that they drove from nigeria and i was like oh, i'm i'm not going to correct the seven-year-old um on that but i'm glad you that's clarified good. for me
1: yeah that's good. it's very uh magnanimous of you to, to yes.
0: correct this, <laughs> the seven-year-old but i do love the idea that i mean you could I, yeah. I mean, if you if you took a ferry and left the car running and moved it back and forth, you could technically. Oh, my gosh. Uh, what if that's from- actually what happened?
1: And there was a great follow up question. And you you just left it on the table because you wanted to be gentle to the seven year old. <laughs> what if that's what that yeah. would have been such a much such a better story? <laughs> Why am I here? What are we
0: doing? I don't know, but I will note that that for those that are listening to this wondering when are we going to actually get to the conversation, I'm thoroughly enjoying this because we're recording this uh, the week of Christmas where both of us have uh, nothing left to give but are simply here as empty vessels to have a conversation uh, first time meeting each other so thank you for thank you for being present today. I, I think we've done this, but I'm happy to be here thank you um, So uh, let's jump into a conversation in your new book. Uh, You Are Not Your Own. Um, You wrote, no significant idea in this book is original. Some I learned from wiser people than myself. Some I came to my own and later discovered in others' writings, but nothing here is really original. Okay, so is it hard to motivate yourself to write a book when you know others have said what you are going to try to say in the book?
1: Uh, it it is a little, it's, um, okay. So is it hard to motivate? What I would say is there are moments of, of serious doubt where you're researching, you're reading, you're talking to other people and, um, you, it's very clear to you that you're not doing anything new and, um, that's obvious. Um, and so those are difficult moments. Um, what, what allowed me to keep going was the, uh, Reality that even though lots of people had made these same essential points, the problem continues. And in fact, it it feels like the uh, the problems that I'm trying to identify, the what I what I describe as the sort of inhumanity of of the way we've structured society, these problems seem to be in more entrenched and more serious and harder for people to see and identify and respond to. So, on the one hand, there are, there are a lot of moments of doubt where I'm just saying, I could just tell people to go buy these 10 books and read them. And then, um, but that would be followed up by experiences with, let's say my students or with people who are not academics or who don't have time to read 10 books, but do have time to read one book, you know, in a month, let's say. Um, And just recognizing that, that uh, for many people, uh, these ideas will, will be new and that that's, that's valuable, even though I'm, I can't, allow myself to imagine that I'm making some grand, um, original contribution, breaking ground or something like that, I can say to myself, well, uh, this will help some people. um, And that's why it's worth doing. So it was, you know, there was a tension there, for sure.
0: I will say this, and uh, you know, for for listeners, uh, I do pride myself on reading the books uh, of the people that I'm I'm interviewing. I don't want a brief. I don't want just a summary. I'm I'm going to read the book. I'm going to get into it. And when I first started reading uh, your book, when it was first sent to me by the publisher, I underlined uh, that. And the first question I want to write was like, uh, back to your publisher, like why would you let him put this in the book? Like, isn't he trying to sell books at the end of the day? Like he's trying to say, like, you don't need to buy my book. So my question, my original question was going to be, tell us why people should buy your book. But you, you answered um, better. So, so I would say where, you know, where, I guess the wrong question would be, where did the inspiration for this book come from? Because it's not necessarily inspiration per se, at least of what you're addressing first. But where, uh, where, where did the concept of this book, the, the drive behind writing it, where did that come from? Yeah, so there are
1: two sort of big uh, moments, two, two moments or series of moments that connected the big ideas of this book. So the one sort of grand, more philosophical abstract idea of the book um, is the idea that many of the conflicts and problems that, uh, f- that our society wrestle with uh, come down to this question of to whom do we belong? So to be a human being, um does it mean that you fundamentally belong to yourself or do you belong to another or to others? And if, and if you belong to others or another, who is that? And what are the obligations that follow suit? And so as I was following sort of the, you know the you know, social issues that were being debated, let's say two or three years ago um, in you know American politics and society, it struck me so many of them really hinge on this question that, that if we assume that we are our own, there are different implications that follow from that. But if we assume that we are radically, that, that we don't belong, that let's say we belong to God, then there are there are different implications. So that was going on at the, the sort of the macro level, the more philosophical level. And then in my personal life, I was just noticing in my students, um, in my family, uh, again, yeah, in my, my personal life, um, this regular experience of, 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 of a kind of fatigue, uh, and Helen Peterson calls it, a burnout. Um, as she talks about millennials as sort of the, the burnout generation, but this, um, well, sometimes it manifests as a, as a, as a mantra. You might say to yourself, I just need to get through the day. Um, or this, this feeling that, you never quite arrive that you're you know sometimes we'll say to ourselves well this is just a season and then you realize that the seasons are always you're always in just a season and there's always another season after that season um so uh in other words this experience of life as uh inhuman and um So at that point, I began to think, what if these two ideas are connected? What if we have a society that is structured around the idea that to be human is to radically belong to yourself? And if that idea is false, if that anthropology is false, would it not create fundamentally inhuman conditions? And so that ended up being the thesis of the book.
0: So you talk about in the the book that um, about belonging, body and soul, both. And life and death to my savior, Jesus Christ. What, what do you mean by this when we talk about like belonging to God? Yeah. So I'm getting this from the Heidelberg Catechism, which is of course is getting from
1: the Bible from Paul. Uh, Paul talks about uh, the idea that we are bought with a price, that we are not around, that we are bought with a price. Um, so I try to break this down into, um, I mean, several different uh, categories or or uh, ways of understanding uh, belonging so maybe the first most fun way I would I would describe it as um, ontological and by that I mean our very being or our existence in the world uh, belongs to belongs to God and and that is because he created us and he sustains us moment by moment our very um, being in the world is an act of grace and love from a creator god so so in that sense we we belong to him and that's actually even sort of prior to what paul's talking about because paul uh is talking about um uh, you know belonging to christ because of christ's sacrifice on the cross which is which is also true uh, but that's a more specific kind of of belonging. I think that, but uh, even prior to that, all humans belong to God in that sense that we owe our being in the world to to His act of creation and preservation. So there's that. There's a a, a theological belonging, or um, that uh, we belong to His family when we. Uh, or uh, let me say it this way, uh, we are uh, united with him uh, in his death and resurrection. So there's a belonging there. Um, so that's sort of the more abstract way of understanding it. But uh, in the book, I talk about the, the practical implications of what this belonging Means and I break it down into um, justification. Uh, I think it's justification, meaning, value. Do you hear my kids in the background?
0: Yeah, but it doesn't bother me. Fine, because here's the
1: thing: is that I'm not my own, and I belong to my. (laughs) Hold, I'm just going to yell at my kids. Don't cut this. (laughs) I'm recording something. Okay, be quiet. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. I don't belong to myself. That's, it would make me so happy
0: if you had if you had a Will Ferrell like uh, I drive a I drive a Dodge Stratus uh, kind of moment screaming at your kids or get off the shed. But we won't cut this because you told us not to
1: don't 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 you dare. You no, know, this is real life. This is real life. Yeah. So I don't even remember the other categories, uh, meaning value identity. Identity is a big one. I talk about, uh, in, in general belonging, because we all have this desire to belong to someone or somewhere. How are they still yelling? How is this possible? Did I not just tell them like one minute ago? Uh, Anyway, I don't, I don't Um, know.
0: Uh, Alan, cause my, like I, I rose, you know, i I have uh, I've said I was a Rosen. Uh, I have raised my kids uh, to the epitome of perfection, and they always, always listen to what I ask them to do. Um, the first time. The first time, yes. That's amazing. No, no eye rolls. Uh, I should be interviewing you. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so let's, let's unpack a little bit more about this because uh, there's a, a word you use in the book that I want to kind of help everybody understand what you mean by this, because it's a word that we use in so many different ways. Um, when you talk about identity, what what do you mean?
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, you're right. But we do use that in a lot of different ways. And that's actually part of the problem that I'm trying to tease out in this section where I talk about identity, because um, at its most fundamental level, identity refers to, uh, difference between two or more objects beings whatever right so you you can't have the of identity if there's only one thing in existence. For example, if God was the only being in existence and uh, he didn't exist as a Trinity, then you couldn't have the concept of identity because there would be no other. So at its most fundamental, what it means to have an identity is to have what we think of typically as like a name and and a, and a face. And you're able to be addressed as a person. But in society, we tend to think of identity uh, much more along the idea lines of of brand or lifestyle or image um and so uh in what what uh, one of my favorite philosophers because his name is fantastic his name is zygmunt bauman it's a great name uh he calls he says that we live in in uh, liquid modernity and by that he means that all these things that traditionally had some stability that were static like identity are very fluid in the contemporary world. And identity is one of the one of the main ones. Uh, most of us live in a, in a state of perpetual identity crisis. Who am I exactly? What does it mean to be Alan Noble? Is baldness a, a key to my identity? Um, is it being professor? What, what exactly? Who exactly am I? Who should I be? How should I present myself to the world? All of these things are uh, modern anxieties. And there are anxieties precisely because we feel that our identities don't have solidity, that our identities are things that we create, that we actually have the obligation to create and define and express out into the world. And what I argue in the book is that um, that understanding of identity as something that we create and project and have to maintain constantly is exhausting and frankly, unbearable. And it also makes a lot of corporations a lot of money because they can sell us things to help us express our identity. But a more Christian understanding of identity is that uh, we always exist before God. And so there is always a witness who sees us and sees us in all our complexity, in all our confusion, in all our sin, in all our doubt, in all our contradictions. He sees us with a gaze of love, and he he knows us rightly. Um, And if we belong to God... We have a different way of understanding identity than we have been taught in the world, and one that is not liquid. That's the key, right? Is that if we're living moment by moment before God, and here I'm, you know, thinking of Kierkegaard, then uh, that then there is stability to who we are. We might not feel like we know who we are, but for God, there
0: is certainty.
1: Can I answer the question? I don't
0: remember what your question. Yeah, was, but... yeah, you alluded to this earlier, and certainly in the book, you raised the point that other theologians, sociologists, artists, politicians, historians, and philosophers have pontificated on our individualistic societal woes, and yet mm. we remain in this cultural cycle. So, what do you believe can change this?
1: This is going to be the, the, the best Sunday school answer, but uh, Jesus uh, is, that's, that's what I've got. Um, and this is the problem with this, especially the second half of, of the book, is that if the first half of the book is correct, if what I'm describing as this false anthropology, this idea that we belong to ourselves fundamentally, um, if that is as ingrained as I argue in the first half of the book, then fixing it, there's not going to be what I call a a three or five-step plan to fixing society, to undoing these deeply embedded ideas. Um, If there is such a plan, if somebody comes along and says, here is how we you know, make our country great again or save America or save the West or save the world or whatever, uh, you can almost be certain that it's a, it's a cult of some kind or somebody's trying to make money off of you or, or uh, you know, they, they're self-deluded. Um, uh, and uh, I- instead, uh, I believe that our posture needs to be one of, of faithfulness. Now, <clears throat> Christian faithfulness is, is an interesting thing Because we don't have the freedom to ignore injustice, right? So, this is not a sort of quietism where we say, Gosh, the world is such a mess. There's so much injustice. There's, uh, you know, we treat each other in such dehumanizing ways. um, But there's nothing we can do about it, right? The, The problem is too big. There's too much suffering in the world. I can't do anything. I just need to mind my own business. That's not an option for Christians. We have to act. But in the book, I talk about acting in stillness. And what I mean by that is that we have to act and pursue justice, uh, making changes in our lives and in our communities um, without the expectation that we are going to save everything, knowing that Christ can absolutely save the city. He can absolutely change things. Um, You know, uh, I I discuss... um, you know, I, the uh, French sociologist, Jacques Loul who who points out that the fact that all of Nineveh repented is like mind blowing. Right. But that's the kind of God we serve, like he can save an entire city. But it's it, it, it when that happens, it's not because we have this 10 uh, step plan that has been proven is the most effective way to, you know, establish justice in your city or to, to you know, solve all your problems. So what I advocate for in the second half of the book, which is not as satisfying as people want, and I I understand that, is uh, that, that we need to to be faithful where God has has placed us, um. And and have hope that He can change things. So it's not a it's not a spirit of despair. We're not we don't have the luxury of despair, um, um and we we have to act, but we act knowing that God is the one who is redeeming things, not
0: us personally. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants financial education experience and financial planning services please visit cbf church benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about cbb our benefits and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry since 2016 cbf has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cdf.net slash podcast support. Obviously, this is a very um, first world, um, you know, postmodern American Christian question. Um when we we talk about Jesus being the answer, I guess, you know, the question is which Jesus, you know, uh, where do we go to to identify this Jesus properly? Because I think so embedded within uh, American Christianity is just a overwhelming individualistic uh, perspective. I mean, for many that grew up in the evangelical church, the message preached to us was this individual salvation experience that, maybe you know if you do a deep dive into the gospels is not necessarily what jesus is inviting you into and certainly Mm uh we cannot be the church unto ourselves uh last time i checked we can't be all the body parts of christ and yet you know so much of what the church pushes these days is such an individualistic thing so so which jesus and where do we go find that jesus if that's the answer
1: okay, so I think there's two two sort of questions or implications of what you're you're asking um what jesus um oh, yeah that's such that is a very postmodern question and I don't even know how to begin to answer that except the the um the jesus of, of of scripture which uh we are going to get uh wrong at times and we are going to um misinterpret we, we are going to put um uh uh biases on and and distort because we are fallen and we do that and it's only by the grace of the holy spirit um sanctifying us that we we understand understand god truly ever ever um but when i say okay what is the hope okay what is the comfort what what hope do we have uh for society what i when i say jesus it's not a jesus that is um defined by my thoughts, okay? It's not a Jesus that I have uh, completely figured out. It's not a Jesus where I say, ah, Jesus, these, I okay, I'm not gonna save the city, Jesus, but I know that you are gonna save the city by doing this, this, and this, and that's what will change everything, okay? Um, I I use T.S. Eliot a lot, and he has in his four quartets these lines where he says um, that we must uh, wait without hope, and uh, uh, in, in the same section, he says that we, he says, we must wait without thought for we are not ready for thought. And I guess that's try, kind of what I'm getting at, is that uh, sometimes when we think about Jesus saving things, fixing everything, what we really mean is, Jesus, I know exactly what you're going to do right so you're going to elect this person you're going to pass these laws you're going to change these people's hearts and then our society will be just and things will be better and that's the jesus that we have in mind And elliot's reminding us um god god is bigger uh god god is in charge and he will do his will and he is redeeming all things but it's not according to the to your hopes that's not according to your thoughts. Um, and so I, and this, to me, is tied into this idea of belonging. If we belong to God, then um, there is a dependence, a radical dependence we have upon him. Now, to the other point you were making, which is stressing the, the, the way that we belong to one another. So what I argue with the book is because we belong to Christ in an analogous, not the same way, we can't belong to anyone else but God, Uh, to god in the same way but in an analogous way we also belong to the church the the, you mentioned the body Uh, i think this is a great um a great way of understanding this i've had some libertarians push back against this book saying that yes we do belong to god but we uh that's a vertical kind of belonging but horizontally we really don't belong to each other we have some obligations to our communities but we don't belong and i just want to say i don't know paul is pretty clear with the language of the body of christ that that we do belong to each other right like you can't have the image of the body of christ where we're all different parts without a sense of no the hand belongs to the foot right the brain belongs to the stomach like we we literally belong to each other now so if that's the case when i talk about all right, we're, we're, we trust that God is the one that's redeeming all things. We don't need to have this 10-step plan to save America or my city or my community or my family or whatever, right? All right, sure, that's fine. But because we belong to one another, because we have obligations, because uh, God is saving his church, of which we are a member, we do have obligations to each other. And that means that we do have to act seeking the good of the other today, right now so again it's this idea yes we're going to wait without hope we're going to say i don't i don't know how god's going to solve all these things i have no idea how he can make for example right now looking at the political situation in america i have no idea how this gets any better i have no idea i have no idea what's going to happen um and i don't have a plan for fixing it but i do know that god is faithful and i do know that i have responsibilities to my community to my family to my church to the to the to the church the global church um, and my responsibility is to act according to the wisdom God has given
0: me today. so i'm I'm sitting here thinking about this, and yet, you know, as I was alluded to earlier, the church is somewhat complicit in this theological understanding of our faith journey and this individualistic nature by which we we live. you know, the the songs we sing in worship all are the personal pronouns, the sermons that we gravitate towards are the, the self-help, you know, these are the things you need to do. So I guess, you know, what, what shifts need to take place in the church clergy listening to this, how, how might they need to adapt their approach to spiritual formation and church programming that, you know, the church is being a, um, a companion, a a vessel by which, uh, you know, it can help people along and rethinking how they look at themselves, who they belong to, and how they approach the world around them?
1: That's a great question. Yeah, so I, I try to make this clear in the book that the problem I'm describing, this idea that we have as contemporary people just accepted... Uh, that a certain anthropology that we fundamentally belong only and ever to ourselves i try to make it clear that this is not us this is not like a, those secular people out there have really have a really screwed up quote-unquote worldview and the church has it together and, and we're going to go save them uh it's it's rather that we've pretty much all imbibed this and it is deeply embedded in the church and it's across theological spectrums um i'm not saying that there are no exceptions that that nobody gets this but i am saying that it is it is so it feels so natural to contemporary people in the west that it, it, it so for example i mean you mentioned you know you're uh, you, you talked about uh faith journey Right. So even even there, like we often even the language we use to talk about faith, you know, earlier you pointed out that, you know, God saves people like the church. Right. But we still uh, it's still hard for us to shake a kind of vocabulary where we talk about where we frame life as a journey. Everybody's life is a personal journey. And uh, your task is to have a great journey, an exciting journey to reach reach the best place. We might, in a secular way, we might talk about being the best version of yourself, but Christians will use, you know, essentially say the same sorts of things from the pulpit in our self-help literature, um, you know whether you am christian gurus we'll talk about it all in the same way where what we're the message we're sending to people is look god has given you this life and now your task is to make something beautiful out of it okay and you're on this journey and we can equip you with techniques and strategies and tools and clothing and style and language to make this journey more effective or interesting or or righteous or whatever but fundamentally this is this is your journey this is what life is about is you have to make something grand out of this. okay? Uh, And um, there are many problems with this, but one of them, I think, is that uh, when we teach people in the church that life is fundamentally a journey of self-becoming, there will be a time in the church from the pulpit where you need to preach something that is going to upset someone who is on their journey of self becoming? So, for example, uh, you might have to say something about greed. And that person, if their fundamental, fundamental way they think about their life is, is this journey, and part of that journey is being wealthy and attaining things, and then you're from the pulpit telling them, um, actually, Christ tells us to radically, calls us to radically give, um, they might say, you know what, this doesn't feel authentic to me. I'm sorry, but this, you know, I am looking at myself and I'm looking at my journey in life and this no longer feels, this no longer feels right. So I don't think I need to be in this church anymore, or it could be sexual sin, or it could be, you know uh, you know, racism or sexism, it could be any number of sins, right. That, that, that an individual says, this is how I understand my life journey. And if we've been telling them, for for their whole lives in the evangelical church, let's say that actually, yeah, that is what life is about: is this personal journey of self-discovery and becoming, uh, and it just happens to have a Christian or or middle-class white evangelical style to it. Well, you know what? There's going to come a time where they're going to say, "Hmm, actually, uh, uh, my internal desires say, uh, you know, no longer fit with this Christian." way of, of being. So I'm going to, I'm going to pass. I'm going to pass. So I think the way we talk about life, what it means to be a, a person. I think w- when we talk about obligations, we tend to be very afraid of, of, of obligations. We want to be very positive and engaging people to explore and to become who they are. Um, uh, I think uh, a lot about young people and careers. So for example, I think You know, we tend to give young people the advice that they should pursue things that they love doing, that they can make money at, and that they're good at, which are good, which are good, three great pieces of advice. But uh, we also need to add to that, uh, that they should be pursuing things that are for the good of their community, right? So like, because you can potentially do things that you're really good at, you can make a whole lot of money at, and you love doing that are terrible for the environment right? That are like destroying God's creation or destroying people's souls or, or hurting people. So the way we talk about, um, okay, what are we doing with our lives um, is, is one way is I think is one important way that we, that we, that we communicate these things from the pulpit.
0: In the book, you're not only calling people to reconsider their individuality, but also to see their interconnectedness with the greater community and the world. You know, it seems most of the things that are ailing our world right now, um, whether it be the COVID-19 pandemic, political division, or or global warming, are, are really problems that have mass individualism at their core. And if we can see that our actions, investments and choices affect more than just me, myself and I, then, you know, maybe we wouldn't be so willing to commit acts of injustice or actually see them as acts of injustice. But the irony is that at the heart of these three major issues are Christians. You know, some of the biggest proponents against the vaccine are Christians clearing my body, my choice. Some of the biggest supporters of politicians and policies that continue ravaging the earth are financial gains, uh, you know, for financial gains are, are Christians. Some of the biggest supporters of continuing practices, um, that lead to inequality and injustice within our communities are, are Christians. So, you know, how, pardon my French, but how in the hell is the church, <laughs> you know, going to create, um, you know, a different culture, you know, you know, we, we have such an egocentric American Christianity. You know, change me from being a pessimist here, that, that we can actually alter people's perspective, um, alter the way that they not only, not only see themselves, but the way they see their neighbors and their interconnectedness with their neighbors, beyond their neighbors that, that look just like them.
1: All right. Well, so, um, okay, pessimism is, I don't know about pessimism. Despair is, is sinful. Right. So despair is, is sinful. Uh, on the other hand, um, I don't I don't know that we can change um, the, 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 the sort of large. Think about the scale of, of Western society, just American society. It is so vast. So we can actually think about All right, what does it really take to change things uh, my whole life. So I was born in 80. 80- i have been hearing messages about environmentalism right and the importance of just like turning this ship the the ship of civilization western civilization at least in america and the way we're using fossil fuels and all these sorts of things shifting it moving it so that we're we're going into a different direction that is not destroying the earth have we made progress for sure yeah we have are we still in a bad place yes um That's a lot. I just turned 40. I've been hearing this message for a long time. So I don't, I don't know, I don't have an idea or strategy and I'm not convinced that there is one that's going to turn these things. Here's what I am convinced of, that it is not um, my responsibility to save the world, that Christ is the one who's in charge. Two, I do have responsibility to the things that I have agency over and that includes primarily those things that are closest to me. So I, I don't know how to, to, to stop Christians across the country from prioritizing profit over the environment uh, or, or uh, you know, profit over um, you know, the good of their employees and customers. But I do know that we have agency, we have ways of influencing and creating communities in our local churches and then expanding outward where we say our expectation for Christian business owners... Is that you do not prioritize efficiency which is one of the things i talk about a lot in the book is that we are motivated largely by this 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 spirit of efficiency that that subsumes that crushes all other values including the good of of of, of our neighbor creation god beauty love truth all these things and instead we say what is the most efficient way to do this well that's the way we'll do this right and so we should be saying to those business owners in our communities who are Christian, um, you actually have to ask the question um, when you're making individual business decisions, am I, is this actually for the good of my employee and my customer? Or is this just a way to make a profit? Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with being more efficient or making a profit, but I do think there is something very wrong with putting those goods before others. And unfortunately, right now, across the theological and political spectrum within the church, there is a general acceptance that if there's a more efficient way to run a company or a school or a church or a program or a nonprofit or whatever, you should always do that more efficient method, whether or not it's loving, whether or not it's good for your neighbor. And so that's where I think, where are we going to make the change? How am I going to, I don't know if I'm going to change you from being a pessimist, but I think uh, we have to start Talking to one another in our local churches, creating standards, creating expectations, uh, calling each other to account, encouraging each other to love and good works, in ways that are radically different. And okay, so and I think uh, one of the ways we need to do this is that we need to think outside of our our our, our culture war or political or slash theological box. So I, I know you know it, it's it's easy to say all right i'm not my own and i belong to god and my neighbor um, and therefore i need to you know uh, you know uh, stay uh, um, you know there are certain implications for that, that fit my political agenda right so that, that it's easy to say when it's when it's comfortable when it, when, it, when it's what it's asking me as something that fits what i already believe But um, I think if you take this idea seriously, um, it should challenge you. And and what I've been saying about this book is that if you read my book and feel like, oh, man, this is right on. Those people are a mess. um, Then you haven't read it carefully enough because uh, that the true idea of belonging to God and therefore having obligations to others is going to challenge everyone and that's, to, to, to answer your question, what does it look like to make change? That's, that's what it has, to be. it has to be. We have to be so serious about this that we will set aside our preferences and our cultural expectations and our agendas and say, what does it really mean to belong to the body? What does it really believe, mean to belong to my spouse, to, have, to belong to my kids who are thankfully no longer fighting
0: outside my door? They sounded like perfect angels to me. Uh, I'm not sure why you were telling them to be quiet. I thought at one point I heard one of them belt out, "Hark, the herald angels sing," but I understand as a parent that you needed to calm them down so that you could focus. So, Um, don't want them to beat each
1: other up. That's yeah, that's
0: good too much. (laughs) Don't hurt Uh, each other. What's your hope for your readers?
1: Twofold. So uh, on the one hand, uh, I think that society is putting an unbearable burden. This is why there's this all- allusion to the myth of Sisyphus and the cover of the book. We're pushing these boulders endlessly up the hill. This this boulder of of self-belonging, where we're personally responsible for our identity and our purpose and our justification and our values and our meaning and our belonging, all these sorts of things. And it's crushing, it's depressing. And, th- and that's what leads us to say things. I just need to get through the day where time is a a burden to get through rather than something to delight in, a joy, a gift from God, which is what it actually is. So on the one hand, uh, I hope that this book lifts that burden, that that it it reveals the lie that has permeated the world and the church um, and placed a burden on us that we cannot bear and it's killing us, in some cases, quite literally killing people. Um, and so I want it. I I hope that readers read this book and feel that weight lifted, and they recognize that they stand before a living and loving God who knows them and sees them rightly, and is preserving them and caring for them, and that their hope is in His grace, not their own uh, righteousness or agency. The other thing that I would hope is that that readers would be called to a greater sense of of Uh, of duties and responsibilities and obligations that they would recognize that while that that unbearable burden has been lifted to truly understand that you belong to God and therefore to his church and to our neighbors and to creation means that you're probably going to have to not probably you're going to have to sacrifice things that are going to hurt you're going to have to die to self daily and it's going to be hard now the difference is that the burden of belonging to God is a burden that is on a human scale. It's a burden that we were created to bear through God's grace and and support. Whereas the other one, belonging to ourselves, being radically autonomous is is unbearable. So that that would be my hope, that, that people would feel that burden lifted and that they would also come to see that life, rightly understood, is a life of sacrifice for others and for God.
0: The book is You Are Not Your Own. Our guest is Dr. Alan Noble. You can learn more about his work at oallennoble.com. Alan, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. Um, what an incredible challenge you are giving to merely belong to Christ. Thanks. This is a lot of fun. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Programs include a 75-hour Master of Divinity degree with concentration in BSK's areas of emphasis, including Black Church Studies, Rural Ministry, and Pastoral Care. For ordained ministers or lay leaders alike, BSK offers nine-hour certificates in black church studies, rural ministries, and pastoral care, as well as two exploring ministry certificates for general ministry training. BSK also offers additional subject-specific training with Flourish workshops in subjects such as Introduction to Youth Ministry, Essentials in Youth Ministry, and the upcoming The Flight of the Soul of America. Now enrolling for fall 2022, apply today at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out CBF.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we'd mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at CBF.net backslash podcast support.